It's good to be here with you this morning. Uh, I am from a broken home myself. Uh, I grew up in an orphanage, and uh, I didn't know what family life was. I had no uh, evidence that I could watch and see what it was like. But as a child, I did dream that someday I could have a family of my very own that was healthy, together, wholesome, happy, loving, etc. That was my dream when I got married. So prior to this, my world consisted basically of all men. The orphanage that I grew up in was an all-boys orphanage. Uh, I had only a brother, didn't have any sisters. Uh, I went in the Navy, it was an all-boys Navy then. And then I got married and had three daughters. <laughs> and then I went to work for a Christian organization that was predominantly women. So my world was full of women everywhere I went, women, women, women. And uh, all I knew about women was what the men taught me. Bad news. And you, as you might guess, it was biased thinking. And so still, I did grow up in the church, and the second orphanage I lived in was a Christian orphanage, and, and they insisted that we go to church. We could go to any church we wanted to, as long as it was Nazarene. <laughs> and so as I grew up in the church, I was trying to do everything that I knew that I had been taught in the church to be a good husband and father, etc. But it wasn't working for me at all. And I think I was religiously practicing what I was told to do. I'm going to take my watch off. I asked the speaker one time what it meant when he took his watch off. He said, absolutely nothing. But at any rate, after 13 years of marriage, I realized that I was well down the road to disaster. And my wife was saying things to me like, you know, I married you, so I got to live with you. It was my choice. But the kids didn't. They didn't have any choice. And I'm not going to let you do to the kids what you do to me. And I thought, and what have I done that is so terrible that you're not going to let me do it to the kids? And But she was serious. And so in, in desperation uh, at that point, because things were looking pretty bad, I turned to God. And I felt God prompting me to read the Bible from cover to cover. And as a Christian, I had never done that. And in fact, could I this morning challenge, especially all you guys, to read the Bible from cover to cover? Now, I've had a lot of guys tell me, well, I've read so much Bible, it's like reading cover to cover. I said, no, no, no. Because you can read the same passage over and over and over and maybe think you've read it enough to read the Bible. But I'm talking about literally reading it from cover to cover. If you read the Bible from cover to cover, do you know how novel you will be in the Christian community? If you cite a couple of verses, people will say, well, you really know your Bible. If you can cite five or six or ten of them, they're like, whoa, did you go to Bible college? Because they're so unfamiliar. And as we heard, people let other people read the Bible for them. They don't read it themselves. So I decided I'd read the Bible from cover to cover. I felt prompted to do so. And one of the passages I ran across was found in 1 Peter 3, 7. Husbands, live with your wife in an understanding way. That hit me right between the eyes. Because I knew I didn't understand my wife. And I was the kind of guy, maybe you're like me. No matter what I did, didn't seem to be right. No matter what I did, didn't seem to be enough. And I thought to myself, it's impossible to please her. Well, yeah, from my thinking. And so I knew I didn't understand my wife, and that because of that I was in violation of the command of God that he gave me. And I see that that verse is to all of us men, not just to me. But I determined that I'd be obedient to God and live with my wife in an understanding way if it killed me. And there were times when I thought it might. But at any rate, with that in mind, I'd like to take this occasion to present the Christian community, this idea of the Christian community with a challenge that contains some of the most stretching concepts that we may have ever uh, heard. I'm going to offer you some of the most stringent opportunities 
for illustrating Christ-likeness you may have ever been confronted with. And since I'm going to start in the book of Jonah, I thought maybe I'd better share a Jonah story. They say if you tell a joke, makes the crowd relax, let you relax. But this is about a lady who is on an airplane, and she's reading her Bible, and the guy next to her said, you really believe that stuff? And she said, yeah, I do. And he said, wait a minute, even the story with Jonah being swallowed by a big fish and living after three days in the sight of that fish? And she said, sure, yeah, I do. And he said, that's stupid. How do you suppose something like that is really possible? And she said, well, I don't know for sure, but I guess when I get to heaven, I can ask Jonah. And he said, and what if he's not in heaven? And she said, well, then you ask him. So then as we get serious, what would you think if I said that I believe that all of us here, in a positive sense, are modern-day Jonas? Now, if you wonder why I say that, it's because I believe God has a special call on each of our lives, every one of us. Why? Simply because you're here at this time, I believe that you have that call on you. I believe that God has called every Christian man's life to uh, literally portray Christ in every aspect of his life. Let me share a passage that I think will explain why I think that we're all modern-day Jonas. Remember how God wanted to deliver a message to Nineveh? Uh, also that Nineveh is one of the worst, most powerful nations at that time. A paraphrase of God's message through Jonah might be like this. Your ways are not my ways. Turn from your ways or face the consequences. You'll be ruined. So may I propose that like Nineveh, we, the Christian community, are being warned by God. Your ways are not my ways. In fact, like God says in Romans 2.24, the world is rejecting me because of you, my people. I think a paraphrase of God's accusation might sound like this. You're not even close to being an illustration of my son to the world. As a result, the reputation of Christianity is being ruined in the eyes of the world by you, my people. And if you've already heard, if you've heard anything of today's news in the past couple of months, you know that Christianity is openly being attacked. When I was a kid, which doesn't seem so long ago, I remember that you, if you were in a public restaurant and you bowed your head to pray, the whole restaurant got quiet. Today they look at you like, what kind of a freak are you? And so, as an illustration of our inadequacy and using the figures I've been able to obtain, you've probably already heard that 53% versus 51%, the Christian community has now passed the non-Christian community endorse rates. We've passed the non-Christian community. And so, and, and we're supposed to have the answers that God has for life. And yet we're showing that we're failing at a better rate than they are. Further, have you also heard that 9% <clears throat> excuse me, of the marriage age population here in the United States which would be 25,290,000 people, don't even get married anymore. They just live together as though they were a man and wife, so they can test the waters to see if marriage is worth it. Then out of that population, 96% ends up separating. But since they're not married, they don't get entered into the divorce statistics. However, if 52% of the population is married, which would be 146,120,000, and that's out of 281 million, and we take over the overall divorce rate of 51%, that would be 74,521,200 out of the same married population, and add that to the numbers of 96% statistics of the non-marrieds, which is 24,278,040, the actual figures for the divorce rates are 
799,240, or a staggering 67.6% .6 divorce rate in the United States. And so with those kind of figures, there's not much evidence that we Christians are influencing the world very much. So as a matter of fact, have you noticed when Christians get divorced, it seems like their Christianity goes out the window. It's completely discarded. And you know people probably who pronounced condemnation against people who were getting divorced. And they end up getting divorced. And they leave the church because they don't want to be condemned anymore. And they associate with their friends who are divorced so that they won't feel condemned anymore. And so all their theology crumbles and goes out into the trash. So then, is it any wonder that when the world talks about Christians, they use the H word. And why are we called hypocrites? It's because the world is watching us as we encounter the same kind of problems in life that they're facing. And it's like the divorce statistics and all the other everyday activities and problems that we face. And they see us being no more successful about solving life problems than they are. So I don't think divorce is the problem. If you guys are anything like me, divorce wasn't the problem. Having answers that would eliminate the need for divorce was my problem. I didn't have answers. I grew up in the church. Nobody gave me step by step by step by step answers. I didn't have them. And I think that's why God prompted me to read the Bible from cover to cover at that point. Because you know what? There's answers in there. But we have to read them. And how do they know we're no more, no more successful than they are? Because they're our friends, our neighbors, our fellow workers, relatives, etc. And they're watching us. And they know that what we say and how we live are two different things. And then, while we're falling short of convincing them that we have it together, they wonder how we have the nerve to tell them, in attitudes if not in words, that they're the heathen, that we have the inside track on life, and that they need to be benefited by letting us teach them how to handle life. So how have we managed to get to this disgraceful place? Well, I think it's simply because we're like the Ninevites. In Jonah 4, 10, and 11, here's what God said to to Jonah and to Jonah about the Ninevites. It says, quote, Then the Lord said, You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. And should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who do not know the difference between their right hand and their left hand. And so what I'm looking at is this, this word, no, is an all-inclusive word. And so here we are, not knowing our right hand from our left hand, or them not knowing their right hand from their left hand. So basically God is saying, you're concerned, Joseph, or Jonah, you're concerned about a stupid gourd? So why is it hard for you to understand my concern about 120,000 people, the entire population in Nineveh, who cannot discern, haven't a clue, do not know their right hand from their left hand? And again, this word know is yada. And to give you an idea how this know, discern, is an all-inclusive word. Here's the Strong's Concordance. Here you see all of these words typically have two, maybe three lines, but here's no, yada. Look at all that. All that just to talk about what, what do we mean by this word no? It's all-inclusive. And this is the same word that's used in husbands live with your wife in an understanding way. Same word in the Greek when you translate it into Hebrew, yada is in there. Same kind of knowledge. 
We're supposed to have that all-inclusive understanding of our wives. Do we know how to do this? So here's why I say we're modern-day Jonas. God has a message for us to deliver to the world. And what's that message? It consists of five concepts. And so I'd like to review with you what these five concepts are that we're talking about here. And you can copy them down if you'd like. But it consists of five concepts. And unfortunately, though, when it comes to these five concepts, I'm afraid that the Christian community also, and this is why I think we're like Ninevites, that the Christian community also cannot discern, doesn't have a clue, does not know their right hand from their left hand. And so let me take this opportunity to warn you again. It's my intent to challenge the Christian community with some of the most stretching concepts recently expressed. I'm going to offer here some of the most stringent opportunities for literally illustrating Christ likeness that you may have ever been confronted with. And that's my intent. We need this in the Christian community. So here are those five concepts. Number one, the Pardon? Oh, you want focus, huh? You want it to be on the screen too? Okay, we can do this. Okay, here we go. There you go. The average Christian husband does not know how to understand their own human spirit well enough so as to be able to provide spiritual leadership. If I have a man come into my office and I see him in really hurting, wounded place in his life, and I say to him, typically, could you describe to me right now the condition of your spirit? And the average guy kind of does something like this. Could you maybe rephrase that so I could get a better handle on it? And I say to him, could I propose to you the reason you asked me to do this? Because you don't understand what I'm talking about. He says, yeah, I don't, I don't think I really know what you're talking about. Here's a man who's in really bad shape, and he cannot tell me what the condition is. Literally, he can't describe the condition of his own human spirit. And Proverbs 25, 28 says, he that hath no rule, he, and, and you know when God says he, he knows the difference between men and women. So when he says he, he means he. And he says, he that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city with broken down walls, unable to protect itself. See, I'm looking at a situation where in those days, they were huge nomadic tribes. And they'd travel around from location to location. They got so big, they turned into a nation that some of them started thinking, yeah, I'm going to build me a house. So they'd build a house. Somebody else say, I can do that too. And they build themselves one. Somebody else says, I can do that. Pretty soon you got houses all over. Now you're stable. The enemy knows where you are. And now they can come in and raid you. So what they do? They start building walls around that to protect themselves. So what's this saying? A man that doesn't understand his own human spirit is like that city without walls. They can be invaded. They're going down. And you know just as many Christian leaders as I do who've gone down because they didn't know how to understand their own human spirit. So if we can recognize our own spirit, or if we can't recognize our own spirit, how can we build spiritual maturity in ourselves or those we're spiritually responsible for? It isn't going to happen. The next, the average Christian husband does not know what is specifically involved in dying to self, what is actually involved in putting his own flesh to death. Let's say, for example, I have a couple in my office, and I'm talking to them, and they're in really bad shape. And the husband is speaking. And as he's speaking, his wife kind of chimes in. And all he does is this. And he finishes, she finishes, and then he goes ahead on. And I say to him, 
Do you know what you just said to your wife? I didn't say anything to my wife. Yeah, you did. No, I did not say anything to my wife. Yeah, in attitude you did. In attitude you said, who asked you, stupid? And she starts crying. And he's looking at her like, whoa, what's happening here? And she says, he does that to me all the time. Why does he always have to try and make me feel so stupid? And that's where she's at. That's what she's hurting about. So in 2 Corinthians 7, 1, it says that we need to purge ourselves of the filthiness of my flesh and the filthiness of my spirit. But if I don't even know what my spirit is, how do I do that? If I don't even know what my flesh is, how do I do that? Do we know how to recognize our flesh in all of its manifestations? Even the subtle things, the look. As I sit with couples a lot of times, I ask them the question, maybe I ask the wife a question, and the husband gives her, and she knows that she doesn't have the freedom to answer that. She knows that, so she doesn't answer. Do, does he know that he just shut her down? No, he doesn't know that. And so do we even recognize when our flesh manifests itself in our everyday lives? Giving our wife controlling looks so that we can put our flesh to death, so as to acquire greater spiritual strength in our own lives. Then next, the average Christian husband does not know what is necessary to make one capable of literally understanding the mind of a woman, his wife, as Christ would, as Christ does. There's not a woman in here that Christ does not thoroughly understand her mind, her thinking, her heart. And we are required to be like Christ to our wife. Do we understand her that well? Which would enable us to discover even more about spiritual power. In 1 Peter 3, 7 it says, Husbands, live with your wife in an understanding way, that your prayers be not hindered. And so here again we're looking at that if we translate it from Greek into Hebrew, yada, very thorough understanding, knowledge of. And then next, number four, the average Christian husband does not know what is actually involved in literally illustrating Christ to his wife in his everyday life. Now, we know that Christ was, is spiritually mature. Ephesians 5, 23 to 27 requires that we be like Christ to our wife. Romans 8, 29 requires that we be conformed to the image of God's Son. Now, if we cannot discover when, where, or how we are not like Christ, how will we be able to discipline ourselves in order that we would more effectively illustrate Christ to anyone, much less our wife? And then number five, the average Christian husband does not know how to discern God's intentions and directions in every situation successfully enough so that he can interpret all of life's physical events and turn them into spiritual lessons. And to me, that's exactly what Romans 8.28 is talking about. All things happen for the good. They say, wait a minute, this wretched, miserable situation, God says it's intended for the good? Yeah, that one too. Do you know how to make that transition from this horrible thing into a lesson that God wants to teach us? Typically not. Now, if we're going to be, <clears throat> excuse me, modern day Jonas, doesn't it make sense that we'd have to learn these five concepts to live them out? ourselves before we can teach them to others? Doesn't it make sense that we cannot bring stability to the Christian community without our providing the kind of spiritual leadership, especially in our marriages, that Christ would? Doesn't it make sense that we cannot bring stability to Christian marriages if we do not understand the heart, the spirit of our wife 
so well that in each situation we face in our marriage, our wife feels like she's had an encounter with Christ? Doesn't it make sense that we cannot bring stability to Christian homes if we cannot illustrate that we know what our wife is thinking in a given situation? We aren't guessing or thinking we know, we know. And our wife will readily testify that we do indeed know what her thinking would be in any given situation. To say, yeah, in a given situation, he'd know what I'm thinking. Doesn't it make sense that we will not be able to pass on any knowledge or understanding about the human spirit if we don't thoroughly understand our own human spirit, nor our wife's spirit? Doesn't it make sense, <coughs> excuse me, that if we're unable to specifically in, in identify all of our own emotions, guys, that if we're unable to specifically identify all of our emotions, that we are emotionally unfamiliar, as such, we'll be unable to identify with the emotional needs of others and care for them, or our wife's emotions, ministering to her as Christ would. And could I get you to look up Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, to recognize how inclusive is our responsibility to thoroughly understand our wife. Now, having said all that, may I propose that the most significant means God has devised for developing spiritual understanding and leadership is found within the framework of the home, the marriage, because it is the most challenging institution for relationships known to man. Marriage is the most significant means for training man to illustrate Christ because God wants it to be. It's the first institution that God himself established. And God wants us to understand everything about it. Now concerning this role of spiritual leadership and how serious God is about it, let me go to Malachi 2, 13 through 15. And it explains what God's expectations of, are of spiritual leadership, expectations that require spiritual awareness, a complete ability to understand our own spirit and the spirit of our wife, so that we can successfully provide Christ-like care for others. So here's what Malachi 2.13 says. And this is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards your offerings or accepts it with favor from your hands. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously. And gentlemen, may I ask you, who gets to decide whether or not a wife feels like she's been dealt with treacherously? Us or our wife? Though she is your companion and the wife of your covenant, but he who has the Spirit of God in him does not treat his wife treacherously. Take heed then to your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. It's normal that we men fail to understand all of the above-mentioned five concepts. That's normal if we don't. But that validates an ignorance that's normal to us as men. It does validate that we do not know our spiritual right hand from our left hand. So if we recognize that Christian, the Christian community has come to this grievous state, I wish the widespread response would be similar to the one found in Nehemiah 1, verses 2 through 9, when Nehemiah had heard of the wretched state of God's people. In verse 2 he says, Hanani, one of my brothers and some men from Judah, came to me. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach 
and the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. Now, it came about when I heard these words, said Nehemiah, and I sat down and wept. And I mourned for days, and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, I beseech thee, O Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Let thine ear now be attentive and thine eyes open to hear the prayers of thy servant, which am praying before thee now day and night on behalf of the sons of Israel, thy servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against thee. I and my father's house have sinned. We've acted very corruptly against thee and have not kept thy commandments nor thy statutes nor the ordinances with which thou didst command thy servant Moses. Remembering the word which thou didst command thy servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been scattered here or were in the most remote parts of the heavens, I'll gather them from there and I'll bring them to a place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. And they are thy servants and thy people whom thou didst redeem by thy great power and thy strong hand. Lord, I beseech thee, may thine ear be attentive to the prayers of thy servant and the prayer of thy servants who delight to revere thy name and make thy servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. And so when we examine in the light of those five concepts and discover how dismally we've fallen short, especially as the spiritual leaders in our homes, that we have not prioritized nor demanded of ourselves that we will illustrate Christ in every aspect of our lives to our wives and families. Might we, as Nehemiah did when we heard those terrible pronouncements, sit down, that we as men could sit down and weep and mourn for days and fast and pray, <clears throat> excuse me, before the God of heaven that we would be obedient to him and then would we determine that we will let our wives and families validate whether or not we're illustrating Christ to them? One of the most um, gratifying moments in my life was Nancy and I would fly from Phoenix, Arizona to Ontario, California. For about 10 years we did this. On Tuesday we'd leave to go over to Ontario and then we'd fly back on Wednesday morning. We did this for about 10 years every day, every week. And if, whenever you do that, <clears throat> you fly that often, you receive an elite status. And so they just automatically just bumped us right up in the first class every time. And we endured that. <laughs> and so we were sitting there one time, and she was reading a Sky Mall magazine. And she showed me something in there. It was very expensive. She said, isn't that nice? I said, yeah, that's nice. You like that? And she said, that's really nice. I said, why don't you get one? And she grinned at me and was like, yeah, right. And so I started looking at it. I said, hey, those are kind of nice there, too. Why don't you get a couple of those? And, oh, look at these. We can get some of those, too. So in fun, we're buying half this magazine. Well, the stewardesses are sitting right smack across from us. <clears throat> and one of them said, excuse me? And I said, yeah. And she said, how long have you guys been married? And at the time, I said, 43 years. And she said, 40? You guys act like newlyweds. I said, well, thanks. She said, what do you attribute that to? And I looked at Nancy, and she went like this. And they said, uh, she said, I, I don't know what that means. And she said, he has pledged to God that he will illustrate Christ to me for the rest of our lives. I can't imagine a greater compliment that a man could receive from his wife. And the stewardess both turned out to be Christians, and they said, I've never heard anything like that in my life. They've never heard anything like that. That should be common in the Christian community. Every wife of a Christian husband should be able to say that kind of word, those kind of words. But they're not, too often. And so here are these two Christian women sitting here hearing this. I also sold two sets of books, too. So. 
And so what I'm looking at is that we should all recognize that this wretched condition that man finds himself in is a result of the fall of Adam, the fall of mankind. But God knew that that fall was going to take place. He already knew that. He knew that the fall would be the result of mankind becoming spiritually ignorant and separated from him. God knew that generationally, as a fall, a result of the fall, mankind would inherit Adam's sin nature. We all inherited from Adam a sin nature. And since God cannot fellowship with sin, my sin nature effectively separates me from God. Then, the results of that separation are, I remain naturally, spiritually ignorant. But God was not willing that I remain permanently separated from Him and ignorant about Him. He wants our spirit-to-spirit relationship restored so that His Spirit can personally guide my spirit that my spirit can obtain a greater degree of godliness. So here's what we need to recognize, that way back in the beginning of time, God knew before it happened that man was going to acquire a fallen nature. So way back then, before it happened, God provided exactly what would be needed to help us today. Now, to see this part of this solution, let's go back in time. Let's examine God's word about this particular event that involves the fall of mankind. See, in the beginning, in Genesis, God said, it's not good for man to be alone. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that, it seems strange to me that God would say, it's not good for man to be alone. It seems strange to me because I would think that fellowshipping with God, with Adam, would be the epitome of not being alone. Here's God fellowshipping with Adam. To me, that'd be the epitome of not being alone. But God is saying it's not good for man to be alone. So I have to ask myself, what did God mean? So recall with me, if you will, Scripture tells us that with God, a thousand years is like a day. That's found in 1 Peter 3, uh, 3.8, or 2 Peter 3.8, and vice versa, a thousand years like a day, a day is like a thousand years. So we also see that God is the beginning and the end, Revelation 21.6, that he's, there's no beginning, no end for God. Now, this means that there are no time limitations for God. Timelines are a human factor. So when God says it's not good for man to be alone, I believe God was looking into what we call the future. And God knew that the fall of mankind was coming and that Adam would be separated from him. So God revealed his sovereignty by taking care of the problem before it happened. He made the fix before the fix was even needed. God revealed his solution to this fallen state. He said, I will make for him a helper. Now, this helper, then, becomes a very significant factor in God's scheme. But we've lost track of the significance of this part of God's solution. Here's some simple evidence of how far we've gotten off track. How many of you heard the term from the Bible, helpmate? Anybody? You know what's interesting? No such word in the Bible. No word helpmate, but that's what we've all heard. Why? Because that's what people call it today. Because again, we've lost what God is talking about. So actually what we're talking about is that uh, we've lost track of the significance of this part of God's solution because we've gotten off so track so far that we call it helpmate because it was actually called helpmeet. But see, helpmeet is a 16th century word. That's what they used to interpret that word at that time. Now, we would use the word today, not help meet, we would use the word helper adequate or sufficient. That's what we, how we interpret it today, because this isn't 16th century England. Now, current definitions also, see, if we read the Bible and we determine what this helper means, then we can give all kinds of ideas about what that means. And for example, you ask a lot of people, what this helper is supposed to do? Well, you know, uh, child rearing, housekeeping, laundry, dishes, stuff like that. Or uh, my helpmate is the mate that grabs hold. Grab the other end of that tube before there for me, will you, mate? And, and we determine what this helpmate means. But like I say, typically it's rearing the children, housekeeping, laundry, dishes, etc. Now, if those are legitimate definitions, th then they should remain consistent. 
So if we go back to the beginning, when that name was given, were there any children? No. So there goes child rearing. Were there any houses? No. There goes housekeeping. Were there any laundry? No. They were naked. How about dishes? These were my dishes. We all took care of our own dishes. And so we can throw out that definition. So if we go back again to our Adam and Eve scenario, God commanded Adam to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now if you stop and think about it, what does that command reveal about Adam's knowledge of good or evil? He doesn't know anything about good or evil. He doesn't even know God's good. He has no frame of reference. He has not eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So God has also told Adam that if you eat of this fruit, you'll surely die. So you stop and think about it again. What understanding do you think Adam had about death? Nothing. All this is totally unfamiliar to him. So I imagine Adam ignorantly and innocently accepting God's word and then simply agreeing to honor it. Yeah, okay, whatever you say. Sure. So what can we tell about mankind from the nature of this scenario? Well, this is not new. We see the same thing happening in Deuteronomy 8, 2, where God asks the nation of Israel, why, do I have, why have I had you wandering in the wilderness for 40 years? To humble you, to test you, for you to know what was in your heart, your spirit, whether you would keep my commandments or not. So what's the point? These two second sections of Scripture show us that historically the nature of man is as such that man wants to make himself sovereign over his own life. Adam was the first test case. God illustrated through Adam, as he did with the nation of Israel, that man has a problem with obedience. And so God is facing man with a challenge. Will you obey me simply because I've given you a command? In all this, we see that history reveals that man has always had a fallen, has fallen short of the glory of God. That man does not have a heart that's inclined any at all to God. We see that man really is in desperate need of a Savior. So, back to Garden of Eden. We find Eve, and Satan has his sights on her. So, as a part of clarifying for myself exactly what is the nature of, and purpose of this helper, I find myself asking this question. Why did Satan choose to tempt Eve instead of Adam? Well, Scripture tells me why. It tells me that Satan's not ignorant. He's, in fact, said to be more cunning than all of the creatures. Now, and we know that cunning involves intelligence. So basically we're told that Satan was one of the most intelligent creatures around. And certainly is evident that he did know about good and evil. He did know about death. So Satan also definitely understood Eve's nature, and that's exactly why he approached her. Satan knew that the woman's nature was designed as such that she had a craving to be valued and acceptable. Now, that's what verse 16 of chapter 3 is saying. Her desires, her teshuka, also translate her cravings. What cravings? She would crave to be valued and accepted, acceptable under her husband, her authority. Now, I, I don't think I have time here now to go into it. No, I don't. Uh, about what this word teshuka actually means and how we have even misused that. If there's a philosophy out that takes teshuka, her desires, and totally distorts it to make it something where she's trying to take power away from us. Not true. But at any rate, note that her cravings shall be. Now, if God says they shall be unto her authority, her husband, how much choice does a woman have? None. She has no choice about whether or not her cravings shall be unto her husband, her authority. So you see, Satan did know her nature. Satan appealed to her cravings to be valued and acceptable by saying, do you know that if you eat of this fruit, It'll make you more like God. And I imagine her saying, because of the craving that's in her to be pleasing to her authority, this will make me more like God? Well, that ought to make him happy. Let's do it. Says so she saw that the fruit was good to eat. 
And so it's obvious that see, Eve was easily affected, attracted by the offer, and she was hooked. So she took the bait, and as a result, she experienced defeat. Now, let me ask you a question. Where do you suppose Adam was while he was being tempted? It says he was standing right there watching everything. He was watching the whole thing. I get a picture of him going, just watching. And so in Genesis 3.6, it tells us, and she gave to her husband who was with her. Now, I was in a, at a, 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 a Hebrew study uh, with the professor of Hebrew at Arizona State University, and he said, this is kind of why you have to watch out for women. And I said, what do you mean? He says, well, you know, she, she did what she did. I said, but wait a minute. He says, he was with her. He's watching the whole thing. What does that mean to you? He says, well, they're married. He's with her, she's with him. I said, no, 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 no. Check the language out. And he got to reading. He said, you know what? You're right. He was standing there watching the whole thing. He observed this happen. Now, some people will say, well, it shows you what a lousy spiritual leader Adam was. He let Satan get to his wife. Well, please remember with me. First of all, Adam was not her spiritual leader. Not till after the fall was she placed under his care. He's just watching this thing take place. It's like I say, Satan and Eve talking, and he's just watching the whole thing. He does not know he's evil, and he's not her caretaker yet. And so, what do you suppose Adam observed taking place when he saw Eve eat the fruit? Now, for example, concerning the idea of becoming more knowledgeable about good and evil. Doesn't that involve becoming more intelligent? And can anyone observe anything noticeable happen when a person becomes more intelligent? No. I mean, you watch somebody read something, they get the intelligent. And that's what, she became more knowledgeable. She's more intelligent about that. Do you suppose he saw something? That, well, I don't know what happened there, but I didn't have nothing to do with that. No, he didn't see anything happen. He didn't see anything happen at all. And then again, concerning death, the idea of death. Not understanding what death was. Not knowing what to look for. Do you think Adam saw anything happen that would make him feel threatened while he's watching Eve eat the fruit? No. So Satan was successful. He knew he would be, because he knew that Eve's very design involved a craving to be valued and acceptable. Now this section of Scripture, Genesis 2 and 3, also allows us to discover additional insights into God's design when it comes to the nature of women. I'd like to make a little special note here. What I'm about to explain to you not only gave me great freedom as a man, but it also opened up scripture for me, as it never before prior to this. It gave me new insight into my own spirit and also the design God set up for restoring his spirit to spirit relationship with mankind. It also gave me a personal plan for discovering daily what God's design is for my life. And this information can do the exact same thing for every man. And that's why Satan does not want us to discover our spiritual right hand from our left hand. So in verse 18 of chapter 2, God says, I will make for him a helper. But we have a problem here. That's the English rendition of the word of the Hebrew word, helper. And unfortunately, we lose so much of what God is actually saying in, when Hebrew words are simply translated in English language, especially when making translations from modern Hebrew. Now, let me give you an idea of what I'm talking about. Uh, I want to share with you uh, some ancient Hebrew here um, in this, this, this word, Ezer. And a lot of people uh, wonder if uh, I've made up this ancient Hebrew stuff, but I didn't. Here's uh, some pages I copied out of my dictionary. Here's the letter Aleph, and here's the letter Aleph in ancient Hebrew. Here's the letter Resh, here's the letter Resh in ancient Hebrew. It's right out of my dictionary. Here's the letter Lamed, there's Lamed. Here's the letter Noon, there's Noon. Here's the letter Hey, there's the letter Hey. So it's all throughout the, my dictionary. Ancient Hebrew is nothing new. And so here we have a picture of ancient Hebrew. Here, Aleph, Aleph. And then we have a definition of that ancient Hebrew word. Now, now the reason why I do this is because I'm going to share some ideas with you. For example, well, let me take the word Hebrew itself first. Let's see, I want to go uh, there. Over, okay. And here. 
Okay, here's the word Hebrew. In English, in uh, Hebrew, it's Ivrit. But now, this is modern Hebrew. This is the translation of modern Hebrew. Hebrew. Ivrit Hebrew. But if you can go into ancient Hebrew, it will tell you why God gave the Hebrews this language. So I take, Hebrew takes a root word and then adds letters before, after, in between, etc. to help change the word. But this is the root word on this. And this is the letter bet. In ancient Hebrew, it looked like this. Now, if that looks like a tent sitting on the ground with a little opening there, that's because that's what it is. It's a picture of a house. Or home. And this is the letter resh. used to look like that. And that's the letter for man. So what we're talking about here is when a couple become married, when they become married, um, they establish a new household. And so now this house has their first little man. There's a generic name for this little man. You know what it is? Son. Simon Bar. This is the word Bar. Simon Bar Jonah. Simon, son of Jonah. And so here we have the word son. Bar. Now this letter here also has changed. It used to look like this. And that means to see or to know, or to reveal through sight. Now, this last letter here has changed also. Now, when I first saw this, it made the hair on the back of my neck stand up. Because, let me explain to you why. The professor of Hebrew at ASU became a friend with this guy named Frank Seekins. And Frank, I'm just a student of this. I'm not a scholar. Frank Seekins is a scholar. He's got this stuff, and he's been studying it for 15, 20 years, and he's, he's really incredible of what he's discovered this. So here's Frank, who did not know how to speak Hebrew. He just knew how to break down the Hebrew language like this. And so he meets the professor of Hebrew, who's an Orthodox Jew. He won't even say the name of, because Scripture says to have the name of on your tongue is vanity, and that's against the rules. So he won't even pronounce the name of. And so here he's that Orthodox, and he meets Frank Seekins, who goes in this ancient Hebrew, and he starts explaining some of these Hebrew words to him. So now, here's this last letter here, Tav, and it's changed. It used to look like this. And that's the sign for two things bound together, or covenant. So, the language that God gave the nation of Israel was to reveal the son of the covenant to them. That's what his purpose was. And with his pictorial language, you could see it even better. So Frank kept working with uh, Danny Ben-Gigi about this Hebrew translations, etc. And the more he got into it, eventually Danny accepted Christ as his personal Savior. An Orthodox Jew. Because he said, your definition of my words are better than mine. And so here's what we're talking about when we talk about this ancient Hebrew. And so what I'd like to do is take this word that we have here now. Uh, let me go back here again. I'm going to take this word helper. And I want to give it definition from the ancient Hebrew language. Because I, I promise you, if you have not heard this before, you ladies have never heard a definition of the term helper like this. But here we have the word helper. Now, again, in Hebrew, that's Ezer. Ayin, Zion, and Resh. And again, you have a root word here, but this is modern Hebrew, and this is the definition of modern Hebrew. So if it's just helper, who gets to decide what kind of help is supposed to be provided? Well, we do. Each one of us is husbands individually. So if I'm going to find out what God meant by this, what, he, what the help was that he intended through this, I have to take these words and break them down again using ancient Hebrew. So here's the letter Zayin, and in ancient Hebrew it looked like this, and this is the picture for an axe, and since I'm describing women, I always have to say, don't jump to conclusions, guys. <laughs> but here's the other letter, and this you may remember is man. So we have here the word axe man. So if we have an axe man, 
how do we break this down to understand what it is? This is the word in Hebrew for enemy, czar. And so we have here the word enemy, and here we have the letter ayin, and it looked like this. And that's again, to see, to know, to reveal. So God didn't actually say, I will make for you a helper. He said, I will make for you a revealer of your enemy. Now we're looking at something totally different that we've ever thought of before. Now, if I look at this then and I say, okay, uh, I have this word of, of, uh, of ancient Hebrew, and I say, God didn't actually make, say, I'll make for him a helper. What he actually said was, I will make for him a revealer of his enemy. Now, we see the terrible seriousness of this when we read what Paul admitted in Romans 7, 18 through 20, 19 through 25. The things I know I should do, I don't do. The things I know I shouldn't do, I do them. Why? I've discovered a law, a law. Sin is alive and well and living in my flesh. Right here. What do I do then, Paul says? Thank God for Jesus Christ. I sure do need a Savior. I need to take up my cross every day to follow Him, to put my flesh to death. And so, if I look at this and I say, okay, my, my helper is to help me reveal my enemy, then if sin, if God cannot fellowship with sin, then sin is the enemy of God. And then if that's the case, then sin is my enemy. It keeps me from fellowshipping with God. If God cannot fellowship with sin, and sin lives in my flesh, then sin is indeed my enemy. Sin makes me at odds with God. Without salvation, the relationship between the spirit of man and the spirit of God is dead. That's what God meant when he said, you will surely die. He didn't mean that the results of the eating of fruit would be you will fall over dead. God was talking about the death of our spirit-to-spirit -spirit relationship with him. God is spirit. They who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And so obviously he's not talking about men physically dying, or he wouldn't have been concerned about Adam staying in the garden and eating from the tree of the life and living forever. So you see that mankind was already destined to physically die. Knowing the results of the fall would be death to our spirit-to-spirit -spirit relationship with God means that we also would become spiritually ignorant. As a result, we would not have a clue about what genuine spirituality was. We wouldn't know our left hand from our right hand. Not for our own good, nor for anyone else's good. So as a solution, God custom designed a special being, a being created with a specific purpose, of assisting a man in his own quest to become more spiritually functional. This being, a wife, would provide a means through which a, a man could measure whether or not he's even getting close to understanding how to relate spirit to spirit. This being created for this purpose is called a wife. At this point, let me point out to at this point, let me add two considerations. Number one, this does not mean that women have no other value, nor does it mean that they have no other function in life or in the Christian community. Number two, someone has mentioned they're concerned that I may be giving wives a club to beat their husbands with. This is most certainly not what's intended. This teaching is not meant to give women a source of power over men, but purpose, God's purposes for this helper is that she help God help her husband in his own quest to become more Christ-like. Now, God requires that a man be like Christ and discover what it takes to relate with his wife on a spirit-to-spirit -spirit level. As he does relate to his wife on a spirit-to-spirit -spirit level, he will become an illustration that it is possible. His spirit-to-spirit -spirit relationship with her provides an example and proves to others that a man can develop the highest relationship with his wife as possible, a spirit-to-spirit -spirit relationship by being spiritually functional. That capacity to relate spirit-to-spirit -spirit will enhance his ability to experience a richer spirit-to-spirit -spirit relationship with God. And a simple way to kind of quickly relate to this is that women may say to a husband, you don't love me. And the husband says, I do too love you. This is my I love you look. And she says, no, you don't love me. He says, why do you say that? She says, you love my body. You don't love me. And he says, you think 
that you and your body are two different things? And she says, yes. Saying, good grief, my wife has gone berserk. He may go to work and say to his friends, you'll never guess what my wife says. My wife thinks that her and her body are two different things. And they'll say, well, you are. You're married to a nut. And they'll go home and tell their wives. You'll never guess what his wife said. She thinks that her and her body are two different things. And every one of his wives will say, they are. And all the guys say, they're all nuts. What does this illustrate? We do not live with our wife in an understanding way, which God demands of us. And so if a wife says that, what does she mean? And I don't have time to go any further right now, but there's specific understanding about what all that means. And so thank you for being able to be with you at this point. And may I close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, you know the seriousness of what you require of us. You know each one of our hearts. You know where we are. You know what we need. I ask God that you would enlighten us. Number one, to read your word from cover to cover. Number two, to find out what does it mean for me to lay down my life for my wife like Christ did for the church. May I learn how to be specifically able in every situation to illustrate Christ to my wife and to my family, that they would give testimony that that's the case. I ask this for all of us in Jesus' name. Amen.